Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Romans. The book of Romans, chapter 8. Now we've already covered the first 10 verses. We're going to drop back to verse 8 and get a running start on verse 11 and take it from there this evening. Now verse 8 is a pretty good summary of chapter 7. It says, So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. That so then is a conclusion. Romans chapter 7 was a description of a man in the flesh. Now do you know by now what that means in the flesh? It's not like you hear a man says to another man, I heard you scream at your wife the other night. He said, yeah, I guess I just got in the flesh. Or a man says, well, I heard you uh, took a drink last week and got drunk again. He says, well, I just got in the flesh again. That's not scriptural terminology. In the flesh is a description of an unsaved, natural, unregenerated man. So he says, so then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Now he does not say that they won't please God. He said they cannot please God. In other words, there's something inherently wrong with a man in the flesh. He told us about that in Romans chapter 7. He said, that which I would, that do I not. That which I would not, that do I. If I do that, I would not. It's no longer I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. Why can a person in the flesh not please God? Is it because his will is bound up or or because he has some evil nature inside? No. A man who is in the flesh cannot please God for the very reason which he stated because he's in the flesh. You say, what do you mean by that? Paul has continually pointed to this body as the seat and origin of sin. This body that you dwell in is the source of your temptation. Just as Adam and Eve's flesh was the thing that brought them into sin. Eve saw the tree that it was pleasant to her eyes. That's the flesh. And that it was good for food. That's the flesh. And a tree to be desired to make one wise. That was the desire of her flesh to add wisdom that she might exalt herself in this life. So the first two sources of her temptation began with the physical body. With the result that it would exalt her as a person. You know, that's a pattern for all sin. All sin begins with the drive of the physical body. And ultimately when the soul fastens itself upon that lust and the soul decides to take that lust, the soul decides that because it's going to elevate the self in some way. So ultimately sin is the selfish use of the body of flesh. So Paul in Romans chapter 7 showed us how much the flesh has failed. And then Romans chapter 8, he begins by telling us there's no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. And he qualifies that, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So the thing that's different about a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian does not walk after his flesh. Now walk is, is a way of life. It's, it's a moment by moment passing. It's the walking through the hours of the day. Now the reason a Christian does not walk after the flesh is because the Bible says he is not in the flesh. Rather, he is in the spirit. Now he's going to begin a discussion, 9, 10, 11, of being in the spirit, which is in contrast to being in the flesh. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, 
if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So there's a clear statement. You, believers, are not in the flesh. We've talked about that. You say, well, <laughs> when I get cold at night, I snuggle up to my wife's flesh to warm up. She's in the flesh. I know she's there because it warms me up on cold nights. Or you say, I have to buy shoes for my feet, my feet of flesh. I don't buy shoes for my spirit. So surely I must have a body of flesh and I have to take heart medicine or high blood pressure medicine or diabetic medicine or something for this body of flesh because I'm in the flesh. So you're either going to have to look at your experience or you're going to have to look at what God says. Now God says you're not in the flesh. He says you've been crucified. He says you're dead. He says you're buried. He says you're raised. He says you're ascended. He says, but you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be the spirit of God dwell in you. He qualifies that. He said, now let's just do a check here. I'm telling you you're not in the flesh, you're in the spirit. But he said, I just want you to know, I'm talking to a particular class of people. Those in whom the spirit of God dwells. He says, now if this spirit doesn't dwell in you, then you're still in the flesh. Only if this spirit dwells in you. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. Now, He's not saying that the body is dead in sin. He said it's dead because of sin. In other words, God had to put the body to death. This is not Adam's death. This is the death that God brought upon the body because of the sinfulness that's in the flesh. The body's dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Now let's go back to verse 9 there. He says, but ye, so this is the first time, but ye are not in the flesh, that he begins to address the believer. You're not in the flesh, but you are in the spirit. So flesh is the seat of one's life. Life emanates from the flesh and a person who's in the flesh, and it cannot do other than that, whereas the believer's life emanates from the spirit. He says, but you are in the spirit. That is not a walk. When he says you are in the spirit, he's not talking about how a believer walks. He's not talking about the quality of your life. He's talking about your location. Where do you dwell? You are in the Spirit. If so be, so he distinguishes whom he's speaking to, that the Spirit of God may dwell in you. So the missing factor in every natural man is the Spirit of God. The human spirit is sufficient to express humanity, but the human spirit is not sufficient to express God. Adam's spirit was sufficient to rule the flesh as long as Adam walked with God. When God made Adam, Adam was not made to be independent. Adam had parts that needed a female. Adam had a soul that needed a female. Adam was made to be interdependent with a female. And if no female had ever been created, Adam would have fallen short of his human potential. You following what I'm saying? Now, likewise, when God made Adam and Eve, he made them to be interdependent with himself. Just like Adam was designed to be wed to a female to create a complete humanity, humanity was created to be wed to God to create a complete humanity. And if humanity is not wed to God, then there's a, a significant missing factor. It was not God's intention that God should create Adam as an autonomous soul 
to live in this universe apart from God. Adam was not equipped either in his body or in his soul for independence from God. His body needed maintenance. God provided that maintenance through the tree of life. When Adam was separated from the tree of life, the maintenance God provided, then Adam's flesh died. He couldn't keep it up. Likewise, Adam's spirit needed communion with God to express his full humanity. And without communion with God, Adam was inadequate in his own soul to take charge of this body of flesh and be what God intended for him to be. In other words, this is inherent within the nature of creation. It has nothing to do at this point with sinfulness. Adam was created to be interlocked, interdependent with God. And without God, he's going to be a failure as a human being. Now, you following me? If Adam had never sinned and God just walked off and left him, he would have failed. If Adam had not committed some act of transgression, if God had departed from him, Adam would have reverted back to an animal-like instinct like we have today. That is, he would have reverted to subsist upon his appetites and passions just like people do today. You say, why? Because Adam's flesh is out of proportion to his own human spirit. In other words, the flesh is more powerful in this present world than is the human spirit to deal with it. The flesh has very pressing needs. Need for water, food, survival, sex, pleasure, seeing, touching, tasting, feeling, music. All of the senses are active and alive and want to be expressed. And without a soul that is held by God, we don't have sufficient resources to take charge and say no to our drives and ourselves. So a carnal man, that is a man living in the body of flesh. A man whose mind, carnally minded, his mind is set on his flesh. A carnal man, a carnally minded man, cannot please God. Because he's inadequate to the task. By very creation, he was inadequate to the task. God never intended him to be otherwise. So when Adam sinned against God, he cut himself off. From God, God departed from Adam. The Spirit of God was withdrawn from Adam. And Adam was left with his own human spirit. And his own resources. Now what I'm teaching you is different from what theology books teach you. Theology book teaches you some vague concept that Adam was perfect and sinless in his original creation. That he was a, sort of like some glorified man. And that when he sinned, his nature turned into something evil, that he was recreated so that his own human nature then developed a propensity to just do bad things and disobey God. So that when a baby's born into the world, a baby's born in the world rebellious against God with a spirit that just wants to do evil and bad things with a depraved nature, and it's taught that his spirit is dead. That is, that Adam's spirit died when he sinned. So that when they say Adam's dead, they say his spirit's dead. So they say that regeneration is God coming along and giving Adam a new spirit. They even teach that Adam lost his will to do the right thing. That Adam's will became fixed on evil. So when a man's born in the world, he has this evil will that wants to do evil things. 
And only way the man can be regenerated is for God to give him a new will. God gives him a new will and then he believes the gospel. And then when he believes the gospel, God puts a new nature inside of him. And that new nature then is sitting there right beside the old nature. So that now Adam is possessed of two, like two souls. Two separate inner souls of some sort. Two separate inner personalities. And one of these personalities wants to do evil all the time. And the other personality wants to do good all the time. So the Christian life comes down to this. It comes down to feeding one personality or the other. If you feed the good personality, you'll do righteous things. If you feed the evil personality, you'll do evil things. So they teach that a Christian has this struggle between these two natures. Now the fact that nothing like that ever appears anywhere in Scripture does not seem to bother the proponents of that. Because that so well fits their experience. Yet what does the Scripture teach? It teaches that those that are in the flesh cannot please God. That is very clear up to this point what it means to be in the flesh. Why can they not please God? Because the resources of the human soul are insufficient to captivate the drives of the flesh and manage them. In other words, the flesh is a wild horse. And your hands are too weak on the reins to drive it. That horse was only meant to be controlled in conjunction with the Lord Jesus Christ sitting in the driver's seat. And your outfit is going to run away with you. If you don't have the Lord Jesus Christ sitting in the driver's seat with you, you're not up to the task. So it is true that all men who are born into the world are born, in a sense, broken. Like a computer that has a program taken out of it. Mechanically, it's all there. But something's missing that makes it operate. The thing that's missing in the born child is God. The thing that's missing into the child that comes in the world is the spirit of God. The man's will is working. His mind is working. His spirit's working. He is exactly like God created Adam in every way. Except he lacks the spirit and the presence of God. Now that's Bible theology. Which is different from some of the theology that you've been taught that comes down from Augustine and Origen. Uh, some of the stuff that comes down through Calvin. And Luther, that lacks biblical foundation. Okay, the Spirit of God comes into the believer immediately upon regeneration. There's some parts of Christianity that teach that you get saved, and then some later date you receive the Spirit. Don't want to dwell on that much here. But that, again, is not scriptural. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, For by one Spirit are we all baptized, baptized into one body. Whether we be Jew or Gentile, whether we be bond or free, we've all been made to drink into one Spirit. So we talked about that before, that when we were crucified with Christ and this body was put to death, we needed a body. So God baptizes us at the resurrection into the body of Jesus Christ so that his body is now our body. So that the, of two bodies, God has made one new body, twain one new man. In 2 Corinthians 1, who has sealed us and given us the earnest of the spirit in our hearts. So when you get saved, God seals you and gives you that spirit. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit, 2 Corinthians 5, 5. Galatians 4, 6, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. 
in whom you also trusted after that you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, whom after you believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13. So right after you believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Then verse 10 of Romans 8. And if Christ be in you, the body, two things, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. So two things are true of you if Christ is in you and you're not in the flesh. The first thing that's true of you is your body's dead because of sin. And that is dead on account of the sin that was in it. In other words, the sin that was there was what necessitated the death of the body. So we're dead in the body in the same way that Christ is dead in the body. So this is a co-crucifixion. It's the sin in the flesh. Therefore, he says, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God. So that which was crucified in us was the same thing that was crucified in Christ. Paul says, I'm crucified with Christ. In Galatians 2.20, nevertheless, I live. 2 Corinthians 5.14 says, for if one died for all, then we're all dead. Now listen, experience will never teach you that your body is dead and free from sin. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? 7.24. And then he answers that. He says, how did God deliver us? He condemned sin in the flesh. God destroyed the body in which the sin dwelt. He said, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. Because of what kind of righteousness? Our righteousness? No, God's righteousness. Romans 5, 21, that as sin hath reigned in the death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life. Romans 10, 4, so Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. And 1 Corinthians 1, 30, but of him are ye in Christ, who of God has made unto us wisdom. Christ has made unto us righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So this righteousness he speaks of, it was lived by one man, by Jesus Christ only. 8, 11. That if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. Now I like this term, if the spirit of him. If the spirit of him that raised up Christ Jesus from the dead dwell in you. Think about it. The thing that we were missing in Adam was the spirit of him. So he says, if that spirit, the, the same spirit that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, if that spirit dwells inside of you, that's the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man. That's the difference between the carnal man and the saved man, the regenerated man. If the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also... Now here's the answer. This is, this is coming down, tying all of this together in Romans. Just about to introduce his final major subject, Romans chapter 8. The final subject of this entire thesis on justification and sanctification. This is the verse where he introduces it. He says, if that spirit dwells in you that raised up Christ, then he shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. I was in a church one time where some people got some false doctrine and they began to talk about God quickening his word to them. Now, I just stopped to mention that because that's so current in some circles. They talked about how the Bible was a dead book. It was just letters. There was nothing there. And that people who read it with their mind didn't get anything out of it. But that they read it in a special way so that God came down and quickened his word to them. That is, there was something sort of supernatural took place. And when he did, they understood it. Other people don't. 
Well, the people can't because they haven't had that quickening yet in their spirit. Now, folks, that's totally false. The, the term quickened here is used every time it's used. Every time it's used is in reference to a glorified, resurrected body. It has nothing to do with God doing anything to your spirit in the process of you exercising faith or reading the Bible. Uh, notice uh, some of the verses on that subject. He says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. Then in Colossians 2.13, you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having blotted out all trespasses. That's the resurrection. So as it is written, the first man Adam was made a living soul, the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. And the context of that in 1 Corinthians 15.45 is the resurrection. Romans 4.17, as it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God who quickeneth the dead. Quickeneth the dead. He's talking about raising Isaac who was sacrificed from the dead in symbol. And then in Ephesians 2, 4, and 6, but God is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. Now do you see why the definition of that word is important when we come to Ephesians? Look at it. How's that verse usually taken? They take that dead in sins to be your spirit having died, not you being legally dead as a result of sinning. And they take that quickening to be something God did in making your spirit alive when he saved you. You see that? That's the verse that is used to teach your spirit was dead and is brought back to life. If that were the case, this would be the only time that the word quickened is used that it referred to something that happened to your spirit because it refers to the body. But if you look at the context, it's clear, even in this passage, that he's talking about your physical body. He said, God is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he hath loved us, even whom we are dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. At the same time, Christ is quickened by grace you saved, and hath, look at this, raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So the quickening here is part of a process that ends in being seated on the heavenly places, which process, he said, already occurred at the time we believed. So this quickening couldn't possibly be giving us a new spirit. It is the resurrection of Jesus Christ and us participating with him in that resurrection. He said he shall quicken your mortal bodies there in Romans 8. Quicken your mortal bodies. So the object of quickening... It's not a spirit. It's not your soul. It is a mortal body. He's been very clear on that. He's still talking about the flesh, but he uses another term here. The mortal body is going to be quickened. So that's the final act of our salvation, which is the donning of a new and glorified body. So what's the believer's responsibility here? He's going to go on with this subject. 8.12 Therefore, brethren... We are debtors. Therefore what? Therefore because of our assurance that God is going to one day give us a glorified body. Because of that we're a debtor. Because we've been circumcised out of the flesh. We've been put to death. And we were buried and raised. And because we're going to get a glorified body one day. He said therefore because of that we're debtors. In other words you owe something to God. For that. He's done so much for you, you owe him something. He's got such a great future in store for you that you owe him something. 
We're debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. Now he's talking now about how you live. Living after. For if ye live after the flesh, he's talking to believers, ye shall die. Brethren, brethren, if ye live after the flesh. See, since you're not in the flesh, since the flesh is the object of crucifixion, if you were to turn back around and live after that dead flesh, then you deserve to die. You deserve the same sentence that God has already placed upon the flesh if you're going to live after it, which is to die. So it takes us back where we start in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after, and that walking is your daily process, after the flesh, but after the spirit. You see, if a Christian does walk after the flesh, then God will kill him. A Christian is not in the flesh. And a Christian is in the spirit. And a Christian is commanded to not walk after the flesh. And a Christian is commanded to walk after the spirit. And a Christian is warned that if he does walk after that dead flesh, then God will kill him. So we've now come to a practical portion as we look back on this whole doctrine. You say, well, what would happen if? Here's what would happen if. If, as a believer, you do not live up to the high calling. If, as a believer, knowing what God thinks about this flesh, knowing that as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God, if you should dare be led by the flesh rather than by the Spirit. If you should dare walk after that flesh, if you should dare mind that flesh out of which you've been circumcised, then God will kill you, the sin unto death. He said, we're debtors, not to the flesh. If you live after the flesh, ye shall die. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. Paul tells them to turn that particular believer over to Satan. He, he was sinning, committing adultery said, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, his body of flesh. Why the destruction of the flesh? That's what he was sitting with. Now the flesh in God was already dead, but the man was walking after the dead flesh. And Paul said, now the church should come together and cast the devils into him. Come together and speak to the devil and say, Satan, you can have him. We're through praying for him. You can take him and deal with him. And they knew what the devil would do. He'd make him sick and kill his body. He said, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That, now listen to this, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the man would have been killed, but his soul would have gone to heaven. Then if any man's work shall be burned, 1 Corinthians 3.15, he shall suffer loss in the judgment seat of Christ. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. There's coming a time when the Bible says all believers will stand before God and give an account for the things done in the flesh, as we walk around in the flesh. And it says that our works will be tried of what sort they are. And it says some of the works will be wood, hay, and stubble, and some will be gold, silver, and precious stones. And it says that the wood, hay, and stubble will be burned up. And the gold and the silver and the precious stones will be left. 
Now, you know, you can take a bale of hay and hide a diamond in it, and it can be a $10,000 bale of hay. Right? But the only value is the diamond. The bale of hay might be worth a dollar. And if you burn the hay up, all that's left is the diamond. You can take some gold and take a handful of gold coins and put them in a beautifully wooden chest. But the value of it is not the chest. It's the gold in it. Now you can take a big pile of stubble and brush and garbage and put a handful of jewels and a handful of gold down in the middle of it and it can be ten dump truck loads of brush and garbage. When you put fire to it, people sift through the ashes, what they're going to look for is the gold, the silver, and the precious stones. Not far from here, a man's house burnt down. Went over then there was nothing left but just ashes. Some old small pieces of broken concrete blocks. And there he was down sifting through the ashes said, what are you looking for? He said, I had ten gold coins. And never did find them. <laughs> and he sifted through them. He said, where are they? They were covered up with a bulldozer. Raymond built his house right on top of where it used to be. They're gone now. All that was worth anything in that his old, old house, ready to be torn down, was just the gold that was in it. Now, I wonder how much gold is in me or in you? How much precious stones? How much of all of our works are just puff and fluff and, and affront? And how much of it is real quality stuff? In the day of our trying before God in the judgment seat of Christ, the Bible said, If any man's work be burned, he shall suffer loss. But he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. In other words, some people will just get saved by the skin of their teeth. Some people go to heaven, but they won't have much reward. They'll just get saved from the fires of hell. Because their work was burned up. Why? Because believers are commanded, are expected to walk after the spirit, not after the flesh. And if they do walk after the flesh, the assurance is God will kill them, take them to heaven early, and they'll lose their reward. A believer cannot continue in sin. You say, what do you mean by cannot continue? Are you wanting to know how far you can go in sin? Say, no. Well, then let's just ask the question this way. How far can I get away from sin? How righteous can I be? How much distance can I get between me and the sin unto death? That's what I want to know. That's the only question I care to answer. I'm not going to provide loopholes for you. I don't know where they are. He says, but if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body. So the regenerated man now has the capacity to not live like he did when he was a carnal man. If ye through the Spirit. The carnal man was a law unto himself. And his members brought him into captivity. You remember that in 7? His members brought him into captivity. The law of sin was dwelling in his members. But now we're not under the law of sin and death. We're under the law of the spirit of liberty in Christ Jesus. So before Adam sinned, the ability to walk after the spirit and after the flesh was not an innate power. It depended on his fellowship with God. We are back under fellowship with God. So we now have this active participation with the Spirit. The Bible says, he that's joined to the Lord is one Spirit. So we now have God's Spirit and our Spirit mingled together like one man and one woman come together and are one flesh. There's still two flesh. My wife sits over here 20 feet from me. I'm here, but the Bible says we're one flesh. So I don't see it. Well, that's not something you can see. That's a secret. That's a mystery that she and I are one flesh. And the Bible says that my Spirit is one with God's Spirit. You say, but his spirit's somewhere else and here's yours. Yes, but the Bible says we're one. 
Just as there's the mystery of a man or woman being one flesh, there's the mystery of a believer being one spirit with the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, Adam was that one spirit with God before he sinned. God came and talked with him and walked in fellowship. That was lost, but now it's regained in the second man, the last Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Colossians 3, 5 says, Mortify yet therefore your members which are upon the earth. Notice that he says that the Christian, if you mortify the deeds of the body. Now, this word mortify is a word that's had some difficulty in its defining. Some people translate it put to death. Now, if that's what it meant, put to death, then the writings of Scripture would have said put to death. They said mortify. Whenever you take a body to a mortician, now the mortician is someone who deals with dead bodies. You can be sure that mortify has to do with dead flesh. It certainly does. But the mortician is not someone who kills people. He's someone who handles dead bodies. To mortify is to starve out, to put this thing out of commission, to deny it any drives. To mortify is similar to put to death, but not the same thing. Mortification is not the execution of something. It's the denial of something, of any expression or manifestation. So he said, mortify your members. Notice what he didn't say, mortify. He didn't tell believers to mortify their flesh. That's important. He did not tell us to mortify our flesh. Why? Because Christ put the flesh to death at the cross and it cannot die any more than it's already died. You cannot crucify yourself. You cannot die. You're already dead. But what you can do, you see these members of our body, eyes, ears, nose, hand, tongue, feet, sex, organs. Remember, that's where sin dwelt in Romans chapter 7. These members still have the capacity to sin. This body of flesh that I'm still walking around in, though I'm circumcised out of it, though in Christ it's crucified, it has the capacity to sin. So I am told, since I'm dead, to mortify the members. That is... Don't yield this member as an instrument of unrighteousness unto sin, but yield this member as an instrument of righteousness unto God. Why? Because I'm dead. My life is hid with Christ in God. So I'm not to allow this dead hand to get out of the coffin and come back and commit an act of sin. I'm not to allow these dead eyes to see what they shouldn't see. I'm not to allow these dead ears to hear what they shouldn't hear. I'm not to allow this dead body of flesh to take root once again in this life. I am to mortify the deeds of this body and walk after the spirit and not after the flesh. Now, if we'd started at this point, if we'd started and said, okay, now that you're a Christian, your job is to mortify the deeds of your body. What you'd have is a bunch of working Christians who would experience a lot of defeat. Why? Because you'd be placing the burden on the believer of accomplishing a victory against this body of flesh. You'd be telling the believer, your job is to overcome the drives of your physical body. Now, folks, we tried that in Romans 7, couldn't do it. The answer has already been given us. You're dead. Your life is hid. Now mortify the deeds. Reckon yourself to be dead. But alive unto God. Don't yield your members as instruments unrighteous sin. But yield yourselves unto God. You see it's based on the facts of the gospel. That I can perform the act of mortifying the deeds of the body. You see it's now an act of faith. It's no longer a struggle. It's no longer an effort. 
It's no longer a Christian endeavor where I've got to worship and pray and read my Bible and struggle along and fast and go into great effort to try to stop the lusting of this flesh. That's not there anymore. Now all I've got to do is just deny the drives of this flesh by the faith that God has given me that the body is dead. It's a simple act of faith that only takes a split second to accomplish. And any believer at any stage in his Christian growth can mortify the deeds of his body and walk in righteousness. Since this is something God did for us and to us, since it's his reality, we don't have to wait until God has altered us internally before we can mortify the deeds of the body. This is a gift of sanctification that's accomplished in Christ. It's not our effort of sanctification. It's not something we're doing for God. It's not something God's doing in us. It's something he did to us that we appropriate by faith. You follow what I'm saying? It's just as much an act of faith as Sarah conceiving through Abraham. If you mortify the deeds of the body, he said, ye shall live. Now, if you walk after the flesh, you'll die as a Christian. But as a Christian, you mortify the deeds of the body, you shall live. Now, I've seen Christians die. God nearly killed me one time. God told me to instruct the believers on how to take the Lord's table. A bunch of new believers, new converts on the side of the road meeting. And they got to taking the Lord's table really disrespectfully. And I thought, well, I don't want to fuss at them. They'll grow out of it. Give them a couple more weeks. And they were taking it every week. And again, they misused the Lord's table. And when they did, God said, just rebuke them. Go ahead, rebuke them. And I didn't do it. I went home and came down with a headache. And within 24 hours, I was in the hospital. And then I was unconscious for the next 10 days. I was not aware of where I was or what was going on. I had encephalitis. One out of three people die with it, and one out of three people have brain damage. And then the, the other third is, like me, better looking. <laughs> no, I did suffer brain damage from it. I, I uh, went out and bought things twice. I did things twice, and I still, I'm, I'm even now growing out of the brain damage I had. I used to just be kind of nutsy after it. I just couldn't function for several years. I would work in selling kitchen cabinets and I would leave the house and, and forget where I was going and forget what I was doing and I'd get to the job and not know who was there, who I got the job from. And At the time I didn't know I was forgetting, I just thought that's the way life was. It was just kind of scary and troublesome. And it wasn't until I grew out of it that I began to realize that I was having these holes in my brain. And when I looked back and realized I wasn't like that anymore, then I knew I'd had that problem. But I would have denied it at the time. I told you I was perfectly normal. I didn't have any trouble at all from it. But uh, my wife said I did, and, and the kids would say I did, and some of my friends would. <laughs> Donnie worked with me some back then. And uh, I'll tell you what, uh, it scared me. when It took me about three months before I could get back to the, to the church house to preach. And the first sermon I preached when I got back was on the Lord's table. And I've been scared to take it ever since. I've been scared to mishandle it. I'm plump scared of it. I'm scared to disobey God. I don't want to die prematurely. My wife needs me. And my kids still need me. And so I don't want to die. And if you sin against God, he'll kill you. I've seen others sin against God and God kill them. You cannot walk after the flesh. Ye shall die. Now, chapter 8, verse 14. I think we'll stop and pick up there next week because that's going to begin a new 
subject. So we don't want to start there now. Let's wait. Pick up 8.14 through 18 next week.